Welcome to Three in a Crowd, the podcast all about creativity, mental health, social change and how they interact. My name is Vanda Canton and I am an artist, facilitator and researcher. Each week I'll be talking to people using creative and artistic ways to change the way we think. I met Alfonso on Zoom during the lockdown. I'd been following his work for a while and was pleasantly surprised when we both ended up joining a psychoanalytic discussion group run by Everyday Analysis. Now, analysis is a really hard word for me to say, and I have to say psychoanalysis all the time. Alfonso is an independent researcher based in Cleveland, Ohio, and this led to a very important WhatsApp conversation about language and accents, including Americans pronouncing Edinburgh, to that all-important rolling of the R in Italian. So it would be like Edinburgh. Edinburgh. <laughs> Brrr. Brrr. As you can hear, we are very serious people. Alfonso's area of interest centres around aesthetics, psychoanalysis, philosophy and media theory. Did you notice how many S's were in those words? But it does also mean that I can make my really geeky psychoanalytic reference about the title of this podcast. Because whilst the number three is indeed my favourite number, we are talking about the triple overlay of creativity, mental health and social justice. But the third, if you see what I did there, is in relation to Freud's topography, the id, ego and superego. Luckily for you, this podcast is not going to explain the ins and outs of Freudian theory, but I did just want to mention it to smooth my psychoanalytic guests. Alfonso has a degree in art history and sociology and is particularly interested in film. As an experimental filmmaker, Alfonso dramatises the everyday. This could include the daily buzz of the world around us from the street to the bus and even those cheeky existential crises. Alfonso's approach is DIY, which is something that is very close to my heart and he uses whatever he needs in order to achieve basic effects and editorial production. Alfonso, welcome to Three in a Crowd. How are you doing over there in Ohio? I am good. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm sweaty. We were just having a little chat about how sweaty we are. How many showers are you taking a day? Uh, man, I'm going to try and limit it to two, if I can, if at all possible. <laughs> how hot is it? <laughs> it is, I think it's going to hit a high of 88 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, wow. My internal uh, converter is broken, so I'm not sure what that is in Celsius. I have no idea, but it sounds it sounds hot. Um, it's too I much. have towels literally all over my flat to try and create a soundproofing effect, but I could have picked a better month to do this because putting towels over your walls in July is uh, really not the one. Anyway, Alfonso, what I wanted to know first of all is what exactly is experimental filmmaking? Um, I would say in my situation, it's it's really just using, literally using whatever tools and resources that you have to um, to get the job done. So um, I really don't have any professional filmmaking equipment. Um, all I have is just my phone, my computer, um, you know, a mic or two. And uh, that's basically it, my environment. So uh, I got 
in the film really heavily, probably around 2014, 2015. Um, since then, I've had, I think I've had two two phones. Um, so right now I have the, the Note 8, the Galaxy Note 8. Um, they're about to, I think, release the Galaxy Note 20 in August. Mm-hmm. So I'm two models behind, but <clears throat> but my phone currently still works, you know, perfectly for what I needed to do. So, so you mentioned that you, you got into film around 2014 and 15. So what, what was kind of going on then? Like why, why then to get into to filmmaking? Um, at that time, I was making a transition out of the fine arts into uh, formerly philosophy and, and psychoanalysis. Uh, I didn't really feel that I had anything to say. Uh, drawing wasn't doing anything for me. Um, painting wasn't really doing anything for me. I had some projects that I wanted to do, but it was going to take um, the materials that I needed. It was going to be beyond the scope that I that I knew um, that I could afford at the moment. Uh, mm-hmm. So that in that in addition to music, um, I played guitar uh, for a while, and at the time I was trying to make a transition into a, a different um, a different style. <clears throat> but I didn't really I didn't really have the uh, the personnel resources necessary to help me guide through that process. So between the fine arts and between music, I said, okay, let me take this moment to set that down and segue into something that I've always wanted to do. Um, and that's really just get into a lot of reading. So I decided to put that stuff down, hit the bookstore every week. So um, Half Price Books is a, I think it might be a, a, a Midwest um, East Coast chain, but mm. they saw me basically every week. It was also nice because they gave me a, a, an educator's discount for working at the the library and the museum that I work for. Um, so I'd get 10% discount. So that was fantastic. So I basically just bought up their philosophy <laughs> section <laughs> over a, an extended period of time. And, so, uh, I mean, there is, there's so much in that. First of all, I'm really curious about two things. Like firstly, in terms of you've said to me before, like fine art wasn't cutting it, which is a really fascinating sentence and a lot, a lot to be said within that. Like, what does that mean? Uh, so aesthetics is basically all about expression. Um, mm. And because it's all about subjective expression, uh, you, you sort of have to know what it is that you want to express. I mean, you could just, you know, contingently express anything that you want without thinking. And, and, and there are people that are, that do that. Um, I myself did that because that was sort of part of my process, but overall, um, my foundation, uh, in terms of the direction that I wanted to take that, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't there anymore. So I, it's, it's sort of weird. It's, it's hard to put it into words, but you know, when I would go to my materials and try and, and, and do something that I felt wasn't necessarily intending to be perfect from, from, from the first step, but just something that felt good 
just from intuition. Uh, it wasn't there. It wasn't there. Mm -hmm. So I'm very, very keen on, on listening to my gut. So I listen to my gut for everything, everything. So if it doesn't feel right in the gut, then that's a clear sign that something needs to change. Mm. So, uh, so when it comes to expressing yourself in the arts, I mean, you'll know because it'll, it'll eventually show up in the work. If, if, if you've done something that doesn't, uh, have any, any heart or any soul to it. And then down the line, you know, your feelings about it may change drastically. So, I mean, you can expect that to a certain degree, but it may really, really vary um, with something that you really, really dislike. Mm. Is that the same as authenticity or? Yeah. Because I guess, I guess what I'm thinking is that when I'm creating stuff, I kind of feel like I come at it from an opposite perspective, possibly, that when I'm writing, I don't really know what's going to come out. Um, I just find a beat and then I just start writing and then just see whether it leads anywhere. And a lot of the time it doesn't, but something might just come out. And even though, I mean, this gut feeling is, is super interesting in terms of applying that to the arts. I don't, I don't know how good I am at listening to my gut. Um, I think it might grumble in a minute anyway because I'm quite hungry. <laughs> um, maybe I should do some uh, expression around that. Um, but I'm I'm quite interested in whether that is uh, consistent with this idea of authenticity in art. Like, is that the same thing? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. I would definitely say that uh, authenticity is is a huge part of it. Um, Self relating to your own thoughts and ideas, which turns, uh, which works through the medium of the materials that you're working with. Um, and then once that goes beyond you, uh, people will form their own uh, valuations about what they're perceiving and taking in. So uh, from that from that point on, I mean, there's not really much you can do, but the personal self-relating uh, dimension is is very important um, mm. in that respect. So, um, yeah, authenticity. I would. I would take as a kind of uh, a certain measure of intensity of what you feel is being transmitted through you and the degree of purification that it's making it into the medium that you're using. So mm -hmm. between those two, the relation between those two um, will determine uh, the, the, perhaps the, the effectiveness of the valuation that you later form about the work in itself uh, down the road. Hmm. How are you choosing your concepts? I mean, some of the, the films that I've seen of yours are really fascinating because you kind of don't really expect what's coming. Like the burger video, I was like, I don't know what is going on here, but I love it. I don't even know why I love it, but I just do. And it, it was really, the other one that I really liked of yours actually was the light bender where you had created, I, I mean, how did you even create that effect? It was kind of, I mean, can you just describe to the listeners like what exactly your process was there? It's a really interesting film. Uh, yeah, I think all I did was I took the video. I just straight took the video of the light bender um, it's a lamp that I have next to my bed. Uh, and then afterward in the editing portion, I put basically just a, I think it's a green filter over, uh, over the, uh, the entire video. And then that was it. 
So that was all that 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 there was to that to that video. The so burger, where is this all coming from? The burger and the light. Like what? Wh- how is? Where is the inspiration for that? So that's that's what we we're uh, just talking about. Just completely completely random, just out of the blue. So that 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 process of just not not knowing what is going to happen um, for me that came that came back in the day after probably after sitting down and, and drawing for a while because with life drawing I have you know a lot of respect for life drawing and I do like seeing um, drawings that look real but I would find I found increasingly over time that it started to feel more routine and less um, I wasn't really getting much from doing just that, from just seeing and doing drawings that looked real. So I needed something that, that was more sort of uh, maybe improvisatory or uh, something unexpected. So I needed to add the, add the unconscious or, you know, contingency in there. So increasingly, increasingly I find myself, um, I guess being drawn more to abstract art, um, and then I think what ended up happening with film was in the process of not having, you know, formal materials, uh, the, the conditions I needed to make a real collaborative film, you sort of have to just run with what you have. So for me and the routine that I had, which is, you know, going to work uh, Monday through Friday, um, just picking up what I saw along the way. And a lot of that is mostly uh, stuff that I saw in commute. So going to and from the bus stop, to and from work, uh, to and from the store on the weekends, um, all that sort of stuff. So you see like a lot of traffic, traffic intersections on on the other stuff uh, on my website. So the stuff on my on my uh, uh, Instagram is a little bit more uh, home based stuff. But my older stuff, you know, you'll see like a lot of traffic sections and uh stuff on the bus and all that sort of uh sort of material so do you know what it reminds me of this is a, mm. a bit of a confession I, think. <laughs> I decided that i wanted to paint rocks um it was one of those days i was like right i'm gonna paint some rocks so i went out uh around my town and just collected all of these rocks <laughs> and looking back i must have looked pretty bizarre like just picking up these big boulders and putting them in my backpack and then going back and like painting them quite intricately um and part of the reason I was doing that was I had this idea in my head that I wanted to use it as a therapeutic tool Mm. and to um maybe write down on the rocks things that I wanted to overcome or things that I wanted that I felt like were giving me a lot of baggage in my life that I wanted to express and then reject so do you feel that filmmaking has any therapeutic qualities to it do you find that it is helpful for you in managing your mental health or kind of um thinking through where you're at in your life like what what's the kind of draw for you yeah I think yeah I think definitely so um that initial attraction when I was making that transition from from the fine arts and music to uh more uh scholastic endeavors uh I didn't really have to think about it. It just sort of happened on its own. So it was more of a more of an intuitive draw, I guess we could say. Um, but the process is interesting for me 
you know, especially at the stripped down level that I'm doing it as, because, you know, I mean, you can watch the, the behind the scenes um, extras for, you know, a lot of the films that are out and you see how stuff gets very complicated very quickly. So, you know, on any given set, you may have, you know, a, a lot of people, too many people to count and too many people to keep track of, you know, as a, as a director. So um, me having to work with the more minimalist process that I have and trying to work my way through it, not having had any formal training, um, it's always a new, something new every time. So that unconscious and contingent element, you know, is automatically brought in um, every time I engage a project. So mm. that, that newness and that freshness uh, is always there to give me, you know, impetus to, to keep going. And, you know, even when I think the material may not be so good, you know, there's always that unexpected element that could sweep in and then sort of make things, make things interesting or, or okay in the end. So mm. um, there's definitely a, a, a therapeutic and um, wellness aspect to it. Mm. I guess it, it sounds like being quite, um, I mean, I'm not a big fan of traditional mindfulness, but I do find that I am quite mindful in music. Um, and I think that there are numerous ways that people can kind of uh, sit with the present moment um, through the arts that isn't necessarily so invasive as doing a full body scan or whatever. And it, it sounds like you're tapping into that a little bit and, and kind of surviving the uncertain um, and having to deal with whatever the elements are that come up. And I guess as you were talking, one of the things I was wondering about as well is in terms of filming the everyday or considering the everyday, has that changed during this corona lockdown? Because our relationship with daily routines, for many of us, I wonder whether it's become quite oppressive or we've become much more heightened and aware of daily practices or just things that we're doing around the house and what the significance is of them or the mundanity of it. Like, how has that influenced you, if at all? Uh, I would say I think probably coming into coming into June, I think it started to wear on me a little bit. Now, I'm not someone who is, you know, really all over the place in terms of uh, going to events and that sort of thing. Uh, the past year has really mostly just been restricted to, you know, I would hit the the movie theater on Mondays or Tuesdays because those would be like the discount days. Um, so when, when films would come out, I would do that. And then the rest of the week would sort of just be, you know, whatever it is. But I would mostly be be here at home. Um, in a way, it changed a lot, but in a way it didn't. Like externally for me, um, because most of the time I was just going to work. And then at the end of the day, I'm coming home and then going through, you know, my evening routine. Um, apart from not going to work, the rest of that time just got filled with um, doing remote work stuff and just sort of engaging with the books and all that stuff that I was already doing prior to the lockdown. <clears throat> mm -hmm. So uh, in a certain respect, that was still routine. Uh, in terms of actually going out and, and commuting, the buses were still running. So that there was no restriction there in trying to get to places. Um, actually, they even added Wi-Fi over the past 
two months, which was uh, uh, an incredible surprise. Yes, all the buses have Wi-Fi, which is uh, pretty incredible (laughs) uh, given the state of things right now. So so that's cool. But um, yeah, so the only thing that really changed was probably the the monotony of physically being in the house all of the time. So, you know, uh, it, it takes me time in order to do the things that I do, but I, I didn't, I didn't realize and I didn't anticipate that not being restricted, that being restricted from going to the few places that I go to, um, would really, uh, fatigue me in a way. So, because I noticed over time I was not, I wasn't going to the books as quickly. You know, I was, wasn't going to the kitchen as quickly. I was really sort of feeling uh, a little bit dragged down. So I started actually going back to work a couple of weeks ago. Um, and actually for the past two and a half weeks, I've actually been at work every day. So, um, so having sort of gone back to my former pre-COVID routine, uh, things are picking up a little bit in my in terms of my personal energy. So, uh, so I sort of feel like a, a back to my back to my old self. Good, I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> I um I think the the word monotony is interesting and definitely describe the last couple of months I have had um especially when it was particularly strict it was like okay me myself and I um which was actually quite maddening um I'm not necessarily someone that goes out all the time either not necessarily I'm not the kind of person that goes out all the time but I did find that I felt very caged and quite oppressed and and I, I was super aware of all the little things that I was doing throughout the day and how um, monotonous they were. But what's interesting as well is is how some of your work is picking up on some of that monotony rather than what I would imagine a lot of filmmakers are seeking to achieve is escapism. It's almost like you're doing the opposite, like you're really confronting the daily. I mean, that for me sounds actually quite scary. Um, And I'm just... I'm really intrigued to know what kind of where your head is at when you're confronting these things. Do you know what I mean? Because it is quite, you know, you could just do this dramatic narrative where you're thinking about all these weird and wonderful things that will never happen, but it allows you to get out of your head. But you're actually going straight into your head, it seems, and always. Yeah, yeah. So it would be, you know, imagine if David Fincher was was filming you know, every second of your life. Um, so in my mind, that was the effect that I wanted to have. Um, so there's some technical limitations to that, but that's the, that's the ideal. So. Are we actually moving towards the every day, every minute, because I'm now thinking about reality TV because maybe, mm. I mean, I don't think I could compare your work to reality TV, <laughs> but maybe I could. Like, maybe it's a kind of, like, psychoanalytic reality TV. But do you know what I mean? Like, do you feel that we, as a, I don't know, world or whatever, 
are becoming more interested and more fascinated with the I mean Instagram for example like we're we're posting I mean I'm rubbish at Instagram but you know people posting pictures of themselves everywhere left right and center um so are we moving towards a fascination with the everyday you know I think even reality tv has made an, an evolution because I remember you know back when MTV and VH1 were doing like their their series of Oh man, I'm I'm blanking out on the names, but they would have blah blah blah. Yeah, like cribs and you know the the shows where they would have the groups in the house and they would do that. Yeah, Big Brother and all that sort of stuff. This is like a really weird quiz that we're getting into, where you're describing reality TV, and I'm like, yeah, Big Brother, cribs in my ride. (laughs) Yes, because my memory is uh, prone to fail at any moment. Um, But I remember seeing all that stuff, and then seeing like know who wants to be a millionaire and all these you know real-time uh game shows and then move because social media wasn't at the stage that it is now so now we've moved into this new model where um all of those previous networks have sort of um become diminished and the more the individual presence mm-hmm. has been enhanced so um now it's these these networks are more so depending on the individual to do all of the promotion all of the the uh putting themselves out there and basically selling themselves while they sort of sit in the background you know give maybe a little bit of a platform and then they'll you know maybe throw some advertising uh incentive in there and all that stuff i'm not exactly sure how all that works in the background but um but yeah we're definitely moving into a more individualistic model which has consequences um with how we perceive the world um so marshall McLuhan, uh the great canadian media theorist would you know he said the medium is the message so in this case um social media as the medium has particular effects. Um, Some of those effects were institutional, moving from more institutional models of entertainment to individual through phones, um, that sort of um, increased personalization. But also now that social media has democratized um, the ability to get and promote yourself out there, the way we perceive ourselves and each other and the world in general is a lot different. So some people, some people promote uh, certain things that, you know, they personally like other people, you know, sort of run to the end of selling things. Um, other people promote lifestyles that they might not necessarily live, but are aesthetically present at least on on the gram you know or on twitter (laughs) um so i mean people people sort of tailor the medium to whatever it is that they want to express um and so it's it's in a certain way difficult to tell now what is real and what is not real 
I've got so many questions. I've got so many questions. You know, when you've got so many thoughts, you just want to open your mouth and they all come out at once and you don't have to formulate it. Okay, firstly, on individuality, could it be, right, how do I articulate this? That we're all individual means that nobody is. Um, and is that actually eroding the possibility of being individual? And on the other hand, in terms of the democratization of creativity let's say um and the fact that now anybody i mean like this podcast i'm producing pretty much single-handedly and training myself to do that and it it gives me an independence in what it is that i want to express and what it is i want to do and i'm wondering whether that like what your thoughts are on what the democratization of the arts let's say actually means and what the repercussion could be politically okay i think heterogeneity is always in the background um, of subjectivity. But I think because of the way that we're constructed as beings, you know, on the, on the ontological level, we have to filter things and we have to simplify things down in order to make them um, comprehensible and approachable. So in doing that, you know, there's weird things that happen, you know, sometimes contradictory and, and paradoxical things. But with regard to the arts, I mean, there's always been in the, an understanding and in the, an acceptance, I think, of individual expression. So um, following a trend to a certain degree is is a little weird. Now, I mean, you do have you know, uh, salons back in the day where people will come, you know, mostly through life drawing and, and sort of traditional um, traditional art. So there's a tradition of getting a, 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 an aesthetic training to produce a particular kind of art, um, but always around that there were always people who were, who were doing their own thing and, and different things and going against the grain and whatnot. Um, but I would say, in terms of today, I don't, I think there's maybe a little bit more conformity because people feel, people feel a little bit of the, the void that they're experiencing in between the expression that they make and the, the numbers maybe that they're not hoping, that they're hoping to achieve, but they're not getting. So there's a there's a gap, um, and a uh, they're not getting enough feedback in between. So what happens is they keep outputting more and more energy, more and more expression um, into the medium, into the social medium, um, hoping for more feedback, but the feedback doesn't come, you know, in the manner that they want. So there's I think a burnout process that happens, which then goes on to you know sort of leach into other dimensions of their life. So um, expression when it comes to media like social media, as opposed to going through, you know, maybe the fine arts or dance or um, any other performative art, uh, I think carries a special type of problem because you're looking for a more immediate response um, that 
you can't always bank on mm-hmm. as opposed to the immediate response that you would get from doing a drawing or writing a song or being part of a dance troupe or you know whatever the case may be there's an immediate feeling that you get from from the act itself that works to satiate and you know put off the the feeling of you know maybe attention that you might be seeking later on down the line with social media it's 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 almost the reverse you're you're trying to draw the the immediate by uh, using that as a as an end to itself, you know, you want the attention. You don't necessarily care about per se about the medium, the the act that you're doing. So, uh, I would say maybe it's it's a little bit more destructive in that in that kind of a way. So you have to be more careful and self monitoring, you know, what it is that you're doing, why you want to do it, who you're doing it for, um, and all the sort of sort of metrics. Wow, I mean. I've never ever thought of that before about the the element of the immediacy. What I have thought about is the void. Um, mm. I think quite a lot about the void, actually, as it happens. <laughs> what is that void, though? It's a void in communication because I mean we're living in in a very very hypersaturated world of content. There's too much content for you to be able to sift through at any given point in time. You know. Myself personally, I mean, I have a Facebook, a Twitter, and an Instagram, and two out of th- two out of the three get neglected completely every day. I just don't have the time to go through the notifications. Um, I don't have time to, you know, to get to everybody's content. You know, when I'm working on, you know, trying to read and trying to write myself, that takes you know an inordinate amount of time, and I really have to focus, so I can't split my focus per se, um, to try and do that. So there's, there's too many things that have to happen on any given day, um, to be able to make it to everything that I want to make it to. Something always ends up on the back burner. Uh, so taking all that into, into the account, um, the void is, is very much real because when you're moving throughout the day, and moving through all and sifting through all this content, um, you're sort of, there's a feeling of alienation that, you know, that may trail all of that. Uh, and it really starts to hit you perhaps maybe at the end of the day when you realize that at most of what you've done and accomplished throughout the day uh, is, is so minimal. Um, and you perhaps didn't talk to the people that you really wanted to talk to, um, or when you did communicate, it was, it was too short. There was nothing really meaningful in the discourse, uh, in the conversations that you had at the time. So there's some, there's short changing that happens, um, in the acts themselves throughout the day and the short changing of those acts, uh, as a as a totality, uh, you know, can't stand against against the content against proceeding through the content itself. So you feel exhausted. You feel exhausted, and then you've not achieved. You've not gotten the end of what you want. So there's some resentment there. Uh, 
um, whether you acknowledge it or not. Um, and I think what happens is people just sort of maybe blank out. They don't realize that all of this is happening and they just keep cycling through the process. So it's a feedback loop, but it's a different kind of feedback loop. So is that the void then or is it too much fullness? I think, I mean, to me, it, it can, the effect of it can come off as the same. So it doesn't, the void doesn't necessarily have to be that there's nothing there. It's that there's a numbing effect from what is, what is materially or immaterially there. So the effect of the void, um, and Marshall McLuhan was all about the effects and, and not the content. So the effect of this, this mediated content that we're talking about um, exhausts the subject. And the exhaustion of the subject uh, also has more effects, which means that they're going to be, uh, they're going to have more affects, they're going to be emotionally out of sync with themselves um, and possibly more. Why? Uh, because we're, um, we're desiring subjects and desire doesn't turn off. So just like we can't turn off um, our senses, uh, we can't turn off our hearing, we can't turn off uh, thinking, feeling, um, we desire constantly. And desire only works in terms of it being the chase, right? So desire only exists insofar as we don't actually have it, which now makes me think back to what you were saying about the immediacy. Mm -hmm. Are we now in a world where we are able to tap into what we think we desire more immediately or to get dopamine hits more immediately? And that means that we're breaking up the uh enjoyment that we have in actually chasing things do you know what i mean yeah yeah i think we're i think we can we can acknowledge we can and we can acknowledge the content that we want perhaps maybe not the path that we need to know to get there but we might know our our target end and then we just have to sort of fill it out as we go along. Um, but in a certain kind of a way, in previous decades, you know, prior social media, um, maybe the more stripped down kind of life added a, I want to say maybe they, they knew a little bit more of, of what they wanted because they, they felt a certain kind of routine that we don't feel. There was not a, an overwhelming sense of saturation. But maybe that's what's happening now post, or well, I mean, not necessarily post COVID, but that mm -hmm. makes me think as well about when, um, you know, the UK, Italy, Europe, whatever started going into lockdown. I, if I had a pound for every time, not that I even use pounds, I use euro. If I had euro for every hmm. time that somebody said that, you know, oh, I'm really, I really hate to say this, but I'm really enjoying the lockdown. It was super interesting. And everybody felt like they shouldn't say it and that they should want more or they should want 
to fill their lives more, but there was a collective feeling, whether or not it was actually said, that people were finding it. I mean, it felt almost like the world was burned out, like we've just been pushing and pushing and pushing in this sphere of nothingness. It's kind of like small talk, you know, like I'm really, I can't really deal with small talk because I feel like it is so full, like it's so present, but it's actually nothing. It's meaningless. Like talking about the the weather is just something we do. But I'm like, well, what what is this covering up? Like what's actually underneath this conversation about weather? Which now makes me think, a little segue here, about philosophy Mm. and how you, I mean, I think it's quite evident in the way that you're thinking and you're speaking that philosophy is tied into your work creatively. Um, I mean, I guess it's a bit like a chicken or an egg question, like which came first. But where are you? Where are you finding inspiration from philosophically? Why did that tie into creativity? Does it tie into creativity? How is it informing your work? I think uh, I think it ties in in the background. So. For example, when I'm writing, most of the time when I'm writing, it's not, well, I'm not doing academic writing. Uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not doing academic writing. A lot of the writing I do is more like automatic writing. So when things come to me, uh, I'm sort of scrambling just to write them down. It's not, I'm not dwelling over it. I'm not you know, sitting there trying to connect sentence one to sentence two and that sort of thing. It just sort of, it's like a dam opens up and then, you know, I'm, I'm running, trying to, trying to get away and, and just filter through as much as I can on the page before I forget it all. Um, so that's more of how the creative energy works through me um, in writing. Now, I sort of, I wish it would translate a little bit more into, uh, like, back into the fine arts um, and into film a little bit. Um, yeah, because I haven't, I haven't done any film lately outside of the the burger, <laughs> the burger video. But uh, like, for example, for example, that that was just pure spontaneity. I had wanted to get in a possible burger for a while, and. I had a friend who uh, had had talked about it and we'd had a short conversation and I went out and got the burger one day on the weekend, got back home, sat down. I was like, this burger looks amazing. I hope it tastes amazing. Let me take a picture. The picture escalated into a video and I was like, okay, let me try and make this like under a minute. Boom, did it. And then that's what popped out. So um, that was just, you know, pure spont- spontaneous process. But I mean, the idea of, you know, juxtaposing the video against the TV screen in the background, because there was a film playing the land before the pines, <clears throat> which is actually a, a very interesting video because it covers, um, two different, two different, um, two different, uh, storylines and they've, how they've, uh, affected each other. Um, so existentially, there's that interesting film in the background, the sort of mundane, routine, but novel burger happening in the foreground. And then the music in the background is Marsha Ambrosius, you know, the first mm-hmm. track off of her, uh, off of her, uh, the one album. And then, you know, between these three things, you're like, what's going on? 
and then the the it cuts off before you can even understand what's going on. So mm. I like that that unknown element in there. That's a real draw for me because I don't want to know everything that's happening necessarily in the process in the in the film or or whatever when I'm writing. And and that's sort of like a, a radical thought in itself of not knowing everything that you're writing down or understanding everything that you're writing down at the point that you're writing it, which in a certain way doesn't make any sense because if it doesn't make sense, then how are you, how are you writing in the first place? But that's what I'm shooting for. So when I come back to it at any point in time, I feel like I want to learn something new, even from my own writing, from my own film, from whatever, anything that I, that I put energy into, you know, I don't want to know all the time. So I try and push all of that out and let the process happen. Mm-hmm. So, so it's sort of a weird contra contradiction in there, but the contradiction is what I'm seeking. Mm. I mean, th- speaking of contradictions as well, I don't know if it is necessarily a contradiction, but I'm just picking up on some of the, the words and, and thoughts that we're thinking about. Like on the one hand, there's democratization, there is accessibility, there is immediacy, but then that is almost uh, an oxymoron or collides with the for many people this idea of fine art or of film and philosophy because you know fine art and philosophy are seen as prestigious or highbrow or inaccessible but you seem to be kind of grappling with how these things actually intersect which is quite is quite fascinating and also a little bit mind-blowing oh no no man it's 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 just chaos that's all it is so if it's if it's mind-blowing it's it's uh... a <laughs> Your mind chaos is, is, is mind-blowing. This is true. <laughs> this Creative is very... in the chaos. What's, yeah. the, what's the most um, surprising thing that you... Have you ever looked at your work and gone, oh, my God, I didn't realise I was feeling like that or discovered something about yourself in your in your construction? Yeah, I think so. Um, usually what happens is after I've done something, I, I tend not to look at it for a while because, as we brought it before, the, the need for constant production... Um, mm. does work through me and I do have a need to not rest on my laurels and keep engaging. Um, so there are some who do attribute this to capitalism and it's need yeah, to exactly constantly produce. Thinking. But for me, I mean, I would, I would tangentially argue that it's not necessarily a capitalistic thing. I mean, if you consider the subject having a capitalistic dimension in themselves, the need to constantly feed their body, to do a, a certain routine of things in order to sustain in the world, um, then that also falls into the desiring and the creative dimension. So, you know, it's not enough just to do one thing and then just to keep looking at it. Like, man, I did that one thing and you know, that's all there is. That's definitely not enough for me. You know, I need to, I need to keep going. I need to take the results of, you know, what I might've learned from that, apply it to something else, or I might not use the results of that. I may want to just do something completely different. So I need to have that open, that openness and that contingency, um, to allow whatever's going to happen, happen. But I need, I need to continue. I need to keep pushing forward and, and going on because I mean, that is 
an end in itself, but it produces mm. so many, so many wonderful things along the way. So I'm that's not about desire again, like yes. that, that kind of constantly. Um, but it, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't quite sound like that. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely a perfectionist. So once I've created something, I will like. I mean, I look at it a lot. I listen mm-hmm. to the same thing over and over again, and then I completely, you know, denigrate myself for not doing it exactly as I wanted or whatever but then at the same time that kind of self-criticism is also what will make me continue and Mm -hmm. strive to improve on it but at the same time I also get bloody exhausted from it and I'm just like oh now I give up do you know what I mean and it's like uh, it's kind of interesting what you're saying and and how that spurs your creativity rather than dampening it and it takes a lot of patience I think yeah um there's not there's not a lot in the world, at least to me, that warrants um, a great deal of my stressing out in terms of energy. Uh, there's just a lot of stuff that's not that's not worth it. I've just had a thought, yeah. Mm. Right. Let's see how this comes out. <laughs> Could it be a political act to produce and not distribute? Oh yeah. Mic drop. Boof. Definitely. That um, was either really profound or really pointless question. But I'm just thinking like, could that actually be because it, it can't be controlled or consumed or commodified, it would just be. And that in some ways is a radical act, right? Mm-hmm. Definitely. I think that happens a lot in music. Because I think especially when you've signed to a label, the label basically owns your content. So that means that you can't necessarily release when you want to. Because if you're on, if you're on a, a, a roster with other artists, um, everybody can't release at the same time. They, because if they're going to put money towards promotion and, get, and maximize the effect of that promotion, then it would be counterproductive to have other artists conflicting at the same time. So they measure it out and they have people release according to a schedule. Um, Because that's the case, that means that in the downtime of you not releasing, you're just creating content, creating more content. Um, That may, now now if you're indie, it can definitely work the same way, but you have you definitely have more freedom over when you want to release. But it's up to your judgment now to decide what points are best for releasing. So you're also you might still be paying attention to you know who your peers, you know who's dropping at, at, at such and such time, you know who in your immediate environment um, is really active, who's not so active, um, and all those sorts of things. So you take on those responsibilities. But I think that definitely happens a lot in music. I'm not so sure about the 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 fine arts. Mm. But um and performance may be a little bit different. You might have you might have some um you might have some ideas and some routines that you've worked out, but you haven't formally presented them to maybe your peers or your audiences. So you may be waiting for the right moment to do that. But because I don't, I don't dance or 
or or do that. I'm not. Not I'm even not. on a Friday night. Yeah, no, or no, a no. Sunday morning, little no, jiggle no, no. in the kitchen. No, 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 <laughs> no, no, no. Um, but yeah, I think that definitely happens a lot in in the arts. But here's the interesting thing, though, right? Because if we're considering this idea of a radical concept of creativity being to not produce and to not distribute, but to do things for your own satisfaction, right? Mm -hmm. And not looking for any reaction from anybody else. Now, to do that, I would assume, would take quite a lot of self, um, maybe for want of a better word, but not necessarily self-satisfaction, but self-contentment, right? But with that level of self-contentment, why would you ever create? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, Maybe it's it's that kind of anxiety and void and confusion that is also productive. Oh yeah, there's there's lots of folks that have talked about that. You know, Jacques Lacan, his whole thing is so he's he's you know for for those who don't know, he's probably the most well known 20th century psycho uh, French psychoanalyst. Um, who is has a reputation for being obscure. Um, somewhat, he a, yes. <laughs> somewhat. <laughs> he did a lot of writing, but his writing was not formal writing per se. It was transcripts of his yeah. seminars. So, uh, so he has transcripts of his seminars, but then the formal writing that he did do, uh, which is collected in a giant volume called the Ecrit, uh, that material I call it is... Ecrits. <laughs> we could do it. Hey, Ecrits is cool. <laughs> do you say but, do you say Lacan or do you say Lacan? I say Lacan. I try to I try to get as close to the original as possible. As evidenced by I'm like Jack uh, our... Lacan. <laughs> Jack Lacan. So but in a certain way in in a more sort of vulgar English, that does make sense because one of the puns on his name is lack. And he I was know. All... I thought yeah. that was me that created that. <laughs> is it not? Damn it. I've been making all these lack on jokes that people yeah, are like, yeah, man. I heard that all before Vanda. <laughs> Damn it. I thought that was me. <laughs> on that note, it is time for what's the three the question in some form of variation that I'm asking everybody my question to you Alfonso is what are the three or what are three useless facts that you know mine are I'm asking you this question because I want to tell you what my useless facts are firstly cows can't walk downstairs the thing is with this who discovered that why was somebody like walking a cow down a st- They can't because of their knees or something. Wow. That's my first one. Cows can't walk downstairs. The second one, you can't take a Furby into the Pentagon. Pentagon. Pentagon? Pentagon. Uh, Pentagon. 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 <laughs> no, I say Pentagon. But you can't take a Furby in. Why because is they, that? Because they think that it might record. But the oh. third and this... I have spent a long time Googling. It is real. Google it just Mm. before you go to sleep. Okay. You can see an owl's eyeball 
through its ear. Oh my God. It's real. That's freaky. If you Google owl eyeball through the air. Oh my God. That level of physiological exposure and unnerves me to, to no end. Okay. Um, let's see. Useless facts. Uh, we can, all right. So maybe, um, we can, we can project that maybe Miles Davis knew about Marshall McLuhan because there's an interview that I always remember where he, he talks about how, um, musicians learned a lot faster with electronic instruments. So maybe he had read some Marshall McLuhan along the way. Don't know. Not sure if that's quite a fact, but we can... Uh... Well, I think it, it counts as a fact, but it's definitely not useless. That's like <laughs> quite an interesting fact that could be quite useful to a lot of musicians out there. Okay, try number two, the most useless information that is in your head. Or is it just me that's full of useless I mean, I have quite a few in my head that just bounce around, mostly about chickens. No, there's there's plenty of there's plenty of useless information. Um I noticed that so my street just recently got repaved and I noticed that in all the slamming and the the churning and the the digging that they did when they break apart the corners of the sidewalks you know those corners um mm-hmm. they do it so perfectly like there's no like mistakes or they don't accidentally chip off into the next block it's perfect You mean when they're like drilling down into it? Yeah. It's like, how do they do that with that machine? I don't know, but it also it sounds really therapeutic and cathartic. So electronic music, drilled pavements, what's going to be your third? Um, let's see. Useless fact. Um, hmm. What about a useless fact about you? A useless fact about myself. Um... I have a lot of band shirts, a lot of uh, metal band shirts. So there was a period like in between uh, 2010, 2015, I'd accumulated a, a lot of uh, merch from shows. And a lot of those shirts don't fit any longer because <laughs> I've <laughs> increased in size. <laughs> Alfonso, where can people find out more about you? Um, you can find me on Twitter at theory analysis um and then you can find my website at theory and analysis all spelled out theory and analysis.wordpress.com if you are in the void of instagram and are looking for me you can find me at vandacanton that's w-a-n-d-a and my website is vandacanton.co.uk thanks for listening to three in a crowd with vanda and alfonso thank you so much for being here i think you've given me many a thought so now between the owl's eyeballs and the void (laughs) i'm perceiving uh a lot of uh, nightmares coming tonight. Um, if you didn't have nightmares from this podcast, please don't forget to leave a rating and comment on iTunes or wherever you're listening as this helps other people to find us. We'll see you next time. <laughs>